Hi, and welcome to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Schmiederer. In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place where Viking academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. So hold on to your helmets as we learn more about Vikings on that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Chris Tuckley, Head of Interpretation here at the Jorvik Group. If you've ever visited the Jorvik Viking Center, Dig, or Barley Hall, you've seen his incredible work. He's with us today to talk about how people have celebrated our Viking heritage through the years. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So you're going to be talking to us today about Viking events and kind of the history that Yorkshire specifically has with Viking pageantry. What brought you to that topic? Well, I've been involved with the Jorvik Viking Festival for, for many years now in a, in a, a range of different roles. The, the first Jorvik Viking Festival that I was part of was way back in 2004, when actually I was working for York Museum's Trust front of house at the Yorkshire Museum, and I was operating their art cart during the February half term. And there was this uh, event going on, this citywide event called the, the Jorvik Viking Festival. And for the, for the art cart activities, I was making little cardboard helmets and swords and shields and decorating them with children and uh, and that was my first taste my first brush with the Jorvik Viking Festival and the, the year after that I was working front of house as a Viking at the Jorvik Viking Centre so again sort of on duty during the Jorvik Viking Festival and then the year after that I was uh, working on programming the the Jorvik Viking Festival so that was my my first sort of office job in the museum sector was was working on the on the events program for for Jorvik and its sister attractions. So you've had quite a lot of involvement then. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Jorvik Viking Festival enthusiast and nerd and uh, <laughs> I sort of try and collect uh, as much information about the Jorvik Viking Festival as I can and it's it's sort of branched out into other areas now and I've started to collect references to other Viking festivals, other large-scale public events where where Vikings play a role where they they appear in the in the public arena and that uh, has sort of led me down the path of looking at the the history of these sorts of events in Yorkshire and they go back a, a very very long way a surprisingly long way and I keep finding them so every time I think I've, I've come up with a full list of festivals and events over the last 150 years or so that have featured Vikings, I stumble across yet more. The, the Jorvik Viking Festival is the only one that has happened with any regularity. The others have been occasional events, sometimes happening every, every 10 years or so, or to mark a particular anniversary or something of that kind. Uh, the Jorvik Viking Festival has run since 1985, right up to the present day. Obviously, this year it's slightly different and we've moved to a, a a completely online model for the very first time in the Jorvik Viking Festival's history. But as, a, as an event in the city of York, it has run uninterrupted in spite of blizzards, floods, you name it, uh, since 1985, every, every February. This is the first year that we've been fully online with that Jorvik Viking thing. So it seems that people, you mentioned they've been celebrating Vikings in Yorkshire for quite a long time. How far back do those celebrations go? Well, the, the earliest reference I've 
come across is to the Ripon Millinery Festival in 1886. That, that's the earliest where I've, I've come across uh, people dressed as Vikings, performing, taking part in a procession in a very sort of public way. Whether they're exactly celebrating the Vikings in some of those earliest events is, is debatable. Uh, the Vikings seem to fulfil a, a particular kind of role in those early pageants and processions, but certainly in that Ripon Millinery Festival in 1886, the, uh, there's a, a procession that was part of the celebration, a procession of around 500 pageant members are on the uh, Friday the 27th and Saturday the 28th of August in that year in the grounds of the Studley Estate. And then on the Saturday, that procession branched out to conclude at the town hall. And within that procession, there was a huge boat drawn by horses. Uh, and this boat had the reputation, uh, at least in the local press, of being a genuine Viking boat that had been unearthed locally. Of, of course it wasn't, um, but the, the boat was, uh, was piloted by um, a Viking crew and uh, the, the souvenir programme that was, that was published to mark the occasion contains a nice description of, of, the, of the scene that these Vikings presented, which I can, I can read you now if you like. Yeah, sure, please. So it, it says that a fierce-looking crew of Vikings glowering on the show from their boat represents the inroads made on England by these marauders during the Danish period. It was no insignificant proof of their earnestness that, in spite of all the quips and cranks of the ever-bustling and always irreverent jesters whose butts they were, the sea monarchs never relaxed their deadly grimness. These fierce sea warriors wore eagle-plumed helmets and strange savage colours and bore murderous-looking axes. Their grouping was easy and unaffected and their fierce visages reproduced faithfully the Danish marauders. The figures were admirably grouped and brilliantly dressed, the bright helmets of the period, beneath which flowed locks of vivid red, caught the sun and dazzled the eyes to look at them. And there is an illustration, actually, of this, of this group that was, that was made at the time. Uh, interestingly as well, the reaction of the audience uh, to the passing of the boat is, is recorded. And it mentions, as it passed, the shouts of applause which followed almost drowned the strains of the band. So the Vikings were a really popular element of this uh, of this procession um, so the, the Romans appear and then I think it's St Wilfrid appears after the Vikings interestingly because in conventional histories as we as we think of them today and where we where we position the Vikings they, they occur later in the, mm -hmm. in the chronology in many of these early pageants and processions Vikings can stand for anything in that sort of post-Roman pre-Norman conquest period so here in the, in the Ripon procession, they are remarkably popular. They're, they're the, the sort of exotic, frightening, murderous, grim looking figures. So whether we're quite celebrating them or not, I don't know, but we're certainly, we're certainly enjoying them. They're, they're certainly popular and people are enjoying them as they, as they pass. Um, so 1886 precedes the, the heyday of the, uh, the pageant in, in, in Britain and the advent of what was known as pageant fever or sometimes pageantitis. And this really is a, a phenomenon of, of the Edwardian period, not just in Yorkshire, not just in England, but certainly Yorkshire had, had a dose of, of pageantitis and uh, a number of, of uh, pageants uh, that, that happened 
in the period running up to the to the First World War, the outbreak of war. And often the same organizers were involved. And actually, one of the one of the organizers, one of the key figures organizing the, the Ripon pageant in, in 1886 and then and then twice after that as well. He then pops up in Thirsk for the Thirsk historical play of 1907 and that one has been identified as the uh, as the starting point really of, of pageant fever in Yorkshire uh, and then and then subsequent to that we have a pageant in in York in 1909 Pickering in 1910 and Scarborough in 1912 as well and um, this period of of pageants has been studied quite intensively recently there's been a, a research project called the redress of the past which looks at historical pageants in England. And you can find there, there's, there's quite a wonderful website attached to the project where you can research um, these, these pageants. And it, and it um, often features photographs and other resources linked to these historical pageants, which were a real craze in this, in this period. And they coincide in the, in the Victorian period and the Edwardian period in England with a rise in nationalist sentiment in a desire to revisit the past to make sense of English and British identities. So what, what people were doing was, was, was looking back and often the Vikings feature as a key element in establishing a sense of identity. Now often they're a sort of a positive influence and the spirit of, of the sort of the, the heroic, adventurous, masculine, muscular Viking is sort of flowing into the English national character. And sometimes they're sort of the grit in the oyster. They are the, the sort of vicious, dangerous, exotic foreign influence under which this, this, this threat under which English or British identity forms and crystallizes. And it's, it's by no means only England or Britain that, that, that are engaged in this, in this practice and who are looking back to the Viking past in making sense of 20th century national identities. The Vikings are really a really handy tool across the board, really, for, for people who are engaged in that process. You mentioned that it's kind of this sense of heritage that people relate to the Vikings and celebrate the Vikings. Do you think that uh, Britons in general understand their links specifically to the Viking period? Do you think that they have a sense of like a connection to the Vikings? Yes, I think I think with the, the Vikings, they become a, a bit of a blank sheet onto which people project their various desires. And I think the the notion that we are linked with the Vikings is a really appealing one. Who doesn't want to look back into their family tree and discover that they are linked to Harold Hardrada or Eric Bloodaxe or or whoever it might be? Now, um, the the rationale. And the methodology for doing that, I think, is is questionable. And it, it, but it doesn't stop commercial genetics companies selling DNA tests on the strength of proving that you, yes, you, can prove that you are related to to Harold Hardrada. Uh, and as I understand it, with my less than perfect understanding of uh, of DNA and genetics and genealogy, that in all likelihood we've all of us got got a Viking knocking around somewhere in our in our family tree, as well as as well as all sorts of, of other people and not just people from northern europe either uh, people from from elsewhere as well all flowing into into our into our family trees once you once you go that far back in history so how do you think the jorvik viking festival fits into all that then is the popularity of the festival a result of people celebrating their culture or is it something else i think it's a 
a, a real mixture of things. And that's that's always been the case. Um, so even when you look back to the, the sort of the heyday of the pageants, which were large scale, but by and large, they were community driven. These were organ- grassroots initiatives. So communities would come together with armies of volunteers to script, organize, stage, costume, produce musical scores for these events. And these weren't exclusively Viking in, in, in focus, although the Vikings are a recurrent and a popular moment in these in these historical historical pageants. I think often the drivers are commercial, for instance. And again, it's not only the Jorvik Viking Festival. When Jorvik got the festival underway, the, one of the main reasons for doing that was to extend the tourist season in York. And a lot of local businesses got on board with, with that as a, as a concept. And they've reported how footfall in York, in their businesses and in the Jorvik Viking Centre increases for, for that week in, in, in February. And as the festival becomes more successful, so the impact itself is, is measured. And when you, when you look back to the, in, as far back as the Ripon Millinery Festival in 1886, thousands of people are, are flooding into Ripon to to watch and to take part so it's a it's a leisure activity it's 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 an important feature of the tourist offer even even stretching far back as far back as as the the 19th century people are arriving by road and rail to to watch and to to meet up and to take part in a range of of leisure activities so the appeal isn't just that sort of identitarian sort of appeal and uh, although that you know that's undoubtedly a part of it so i think i think there are a range of a range of motives for taking part in 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 festivals well obviously for these festivals and celebration there's quite a bit of um pomp and all of that are there any aspects of viking culture that you find lend themselves really well to these modern day celebrations well i think what we have now uh, an event like the the Jorvik viking festival and its successor, that Jorvik Viking thing, is living history and reenactment feature in a way that they wouldn't have in those very earliest pageants and processions and, and festivals of other kinds. So Viking reenactment gets going during the, the 1970s. And reenactment and living history has a different value set in a way from, from, the, from the, the pageants. Both value what they see as a kind of truthfulness to the historical record and an authenticity, but they locate their authenticity in different ways and in different places. So an appeal to a kind of archaeological and a material authenticity is there from from the get-go. So the the organisers of the Ripon Millinery event were aware, for instance, of the Gokstad discovery and the Gokstad ship, and they they mention that, and that inspires some of the decoration that appears on the boat that formed part of the procession. What you get in reenactment circles from the 1970s onwards, and, and increasingly up to the present day, is a concern to replicate as closely as possible the material conditions, the dress, particularly the dress, the kit and other material aspects of people who lived in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. So although the people who organised pageants and costumed the the Viking characters who who took part referred in good faith back to the the resources that they had available to them, the, the Vikings as they appeared then with their horned or winged helmets 
obviously look quite different from from the reenactors who we have taking part in our in our festivals today. Also going hand in hand with that sort of authenticity that the reenactor would would value, we have links to, for instance, modern day Scandinavian culture and other other kinds of Viking inspired and, and Viking influenced cultural products as well. And that's not unique to the 21st century. I've just today come across reference to a, a festival of Norway in Scarborough in 1966, also known as the, the, the Scarborough Millinery or, or Millennium Festival. Um, so it's looking back to its Viking past and its legendary foundation by a Viking called Thorgil Scarfi, from where we get the name Scarborough. But actually it involved the, New, the Norwegian ambassador it involved delegations from, from Norway coming over as well. And so you do have a concern in various events to establish links with, with modern populations, modern sort of descendant populations of Vikings and other, and other historical peoples and communities as well. You mentioned authenticity and, and um, how that's a key point in a lot of these celebrations. How far can reenactments and living history events be regarded as a legitimate tool for education rather than just entertainment? I think they're entirely legitimate and they are part of a sort of battery of resources that we can bring to bear on the education of the public about the Viking past. But as in all things, I think it's important to use them in in their proper proportion and contextualise them as much as possible. The difficulty with any of of this stuff and the difficulty at at places like Jorvik is providing enough context within the space of time that you have allotted to you in the course of a visit to Jorvik or in the course of attendance at a, a public event or in as much as you can pre- present it in a, uh, an event programme or a pageant programme. We are always constrained by the, the attention span of the audience, by the amount of space and the amount of time that, that we have at our, at our disposal. I think the, the important thing that what we, what we try to do as far as we're able at Jorvik is to do no harm and to always try to equip people to be critical about the, the versions of the past that we present to them. Uh, I think that, that's, uh, that's more important at the moment than, than ever, which is why I guess sometimes we sort of hedge around a little bit our interpretations of the Viking past, which is probably quite frustrating for, for, for some people. But as we know from working at places like Jorvik and its sister attraction, Dig, everything that we do is an interpretation of the evidence and multiple interpretations are available and ours isn't the only authoritative interpretation of the past. And I think with, with reenactment, as soon as you start to boil things down to a sort of absolutist version of the past based only on material evidence, automatically then you've, you've got various pitfalls and you've, you're, it's a kind of a, a reductionist version of the, of the past. I think what, what it's in everyone's interest to do is to blow things as wide open as possible and to you know, make it clear that the past isn't really in anyone's ownership. It is something that's constantly changing and constantly being revised. And it's in constant dialogue with the present and it informs dialogues in the present as well, if that all makes sense. These are the sorts of thoughts that keep me awake at night. <laughs> well, now I suppose that brings us to our ultimate question. Do you think that these events and reenactments and festivals have helped to change the reputation of historical Vikings? 
I think they belong on a continuum with other popular Viking-themed entertainments and education resources. And it's so hard to separate them out. They all feed off each other and inform each other. And popular Vikings inform academic Vikings as much as academic Vikings inform popular Vikings. So I think how difficult it is to measure and to quantify the influence of something like, for instance, to take an example, if we, if we think back to, well, if we think back to the 19th century, something like the Ripon Millinery Festival, or if we hop forward in time into the middle years of the 20th century, something like that 1958 film, The Vikings, which was very popular at the time and has continued to be popular. And he's still regularly shown on TV here in the UK as one of those sort of bank holiday movies that quite regularly pops up on, on TV and people. And people still watch it and enjoy it. And maybe they've got DVD copies of it and, and they watch it in that way as well. And then up to the present day, something like Assassin's Creed Valhalla or Skyrim. And when we look, when I look back at Jorvik Viking Festival and other reenactment events and other Viking themed festivals, you can see these uh, sort of an iconography almost of the Viking world being reproduced. So whether it's in the early days with the with the uh, horned helmets or helmets with other kinds of appendages that are influenced by uh, operatic productions of Wagner's Ring Cycle and the, the kinds of costumes that were, that were worn in those in those productions, or something like uh, a reenactment battle by the Norse Film and Pageant Society, and again with people in fairly exotic-looking clothing, again maybe influenced by something like that movie, The Vikings, or reenactment today where people will have seen that History Channel show, The Vikings, and they will be, will have been influenced by by that as well. It's immensely popular and it will have that, that sort of cut through from interested general audiences to people with a real passion and enthusiasm for living history uh, and for you know, living a kind of a Viking identity, which then feeds into how they perform and what they present at a festival event. It, it's so difficult to quantify and to qualify exactly where the influence of a reenactment event or a festival begins and ends when it is part of that of that continuum of, of popular entertainments and imageries, imagery um, associated with the Viking period. So I'm afraid that's probably not a very satisfactory answer, but I would say that it has influenced it. It, it has influenced ideas about the Viking world and Viking reputations in some way, but probably we can't consider public events to have influenced popular ideas about the Vikings in isolation from those other influences. Fair enough. I love that you can just draw a line basically from this tiny little festival in Ripon all the way to our virtual thing now online in, in 2021. That's that's so much fun. Yeah, I think I think we really can. I think it's it's interesting to look back and to read that account as fleeting as it is of people being excited by the appearance of those Vikings, those grim-faced Vikings as they came past on that boat pulled by the horses. And you can draw a line between them and our audiences today and their excitement and their enthusiasm about, about looking back to the Viking past. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure. No problem. You can see some of the images Chris referred to in our show notes. Just visit yourvicthing.com. 
Also, if you haven't already, you can still book your ticket for a tour of the famous ride at the Jorvik Viking Center, hosted by Chris. The event will be live-streamed on Thursday, the 17th of February. You can also see Chris's work at any of our attractions, Barley Hall, Dig, and of course, Jorvik Viking Center. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is an Audible associate. If you sign up for a free 30-day Audible trial using the code VIKINGTHING-21, you'll get a free audiobook download, and you'll also be supporting your favorite Viking podcast. Even better, the audiobook is yours to keep forever, no strings attached. This time, we recommend Yorkshire, A Lyrical History of England's Greatest County by Richard Morris. Listen to the history of Yorkshire, meet the people who came and went and left their mark here, encounter real and fabled heroes, and discover why, from the Iron Age to the Cold War, Yorkshire has been such a key place in times of tension and struggle. All spoken with the usual Yorkshire charm you'd expect from God's own county. Thank you for listening to That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support That Jorvik Viking Thing, visit jorvikthing.com to make a donation, as well as to find a whole horde of Viking-related content. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and York Archaeological Trust, researched by Miranda Schmiederer and Ashley Fisher, with research support from Bede Rogerson and Philip Roebuck, produced by Ashley Fisher, sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.